is my body okay? Do I need to burp? No, <laughs> I'm good. Well, Welcome nice. to Mid Wretched. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, friends. Um, we're so happy to be together. We have both had, as we were just discussing, very hard weeks, and so um, glad to be together. Glad that you're here. Glad that we're here. Glad that nobody is outwardly gassy at the moment. That's good. Thank you. You know what? It has been a stressful, full-fledged burnout week. Mm. And sometimes the gas comes with the stress and the ulcers. I probably have an (laughs) ulcer by now. You know, you might have an ulcer by now. (laughs) If anybody was going to get an ulcer by now, it might actually be you. I am internally a 55-year-old man. That's true. That is accurate. I was was thinking about that the other day while I was complaining about how I couldn't find orange bitters. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Aw, that's really cute. Because I am an old man. Yes. You are. You are. It's very charming. How are you doing, my friend? I am alive. (laughs) I am existent, as we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Um... Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing, you know, I mean, we're p- spacing out our episodes now. So when we air is not um, as close to when we record, but um, I'm sure a lot of us are thinking about the shooting that just happened in Texas, the school shooting that just happened there, the grocery store shooting in Buffalo, New York. Yep. And I've just been thinking a lot about like, just how we react to those things culturally and how we don't react enough to those things culturally and we certainly don't react to them enough politically or policy wise and it's just really um it just is it's incredibly sad and i've just been kind of living in a lot of that sadness honestly and that's kind of where i've been too i was yeah so i have a lot of burnout from work but also just a lot of just like cultural burnout political burnout and I was talking to my partner about this just beforehand while I was eating my old man bowl of stroganoff (laughs) I was saying you know it's just it's tiring always being outraged and it's tiring always being the one that's putting yourself out there that's trying to stand up it's exhausting Mm -hmm. feeling like you're constantly self-advocating or advocating for other people or advocating in politics and to do that and to see nothing change yeah and it's just like an existential exhaustion it's yeah the existential dread is so deep i was talking about the same thing with my um ex-husband's girlfriend actually (laughs) and we were both just like it's so exhausting to be the bigger person all the time and to just like constantly be thinking about these things like wouldn't it be so nice sometimes to just not care about stuff and just go about your day like okay well that happened you know but that's not how I'm built it's certainly not how you're built the whole when they go low we go high thing was real cute but where has it gotten Mm -hmm. us yeah it's been such a struggle and I've just been really like like I was you know like yesterday running a million miles an hour and yesterday is when uh that shooting happened in Texas and um Mm -hmm. I had just gotten done like playing with my four-year-old at the park, like tossing rocks in the river. And, you know, my baby is like snoozing adorably in the sun. And I'm like, I would just love to feel like my daughters have more rights in this country than guns do. Yeah. And that just really scares me. So. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so good stuff. Um, on a lighter note, what light notes do we have? Uh, My garden is in the ground. Nice. Everything is growing, and we are growing officially in the soil that we made last year. Oh, great. That's awesome. Which is very cute and very fun. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So we're officially on round two of garden and round one of compost. Nice. You know what compost is made of? Dead things. You know what we're going to talk Correct. about today? Dead things. Hey, you know what wow. wasn't a pretty... What was... A very classy transition. That one. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Okay. Well, on that note, I'm going to get started with my story today. <laughs> so, friends, uh, today we are going to do part one of a two-part exploration. Ooh. I'm going to call it an exploration. This really, though, when I kind of boiled it down, this is really the story about two very different sides of the same town and two unconnected, drastically different women who both went missing within a few months of each other, one found dead and the other never seen again. Wow. Really, it's going to be in many ways about how differently two very similar cases can be treated in the same place, depending on the victim's background. It's about influence and access and most importantly, these are the stories of Crystal Grubb and Lauren Spearer in right. Bloomington, Indiana. All right. I'm going to kind of go back to one of my favorite modes, and I haven't been in this mode in a little while, so I'm, I'm happy to be here again, um, where I'm going to talk about our setting quite a bit here. Okay. So beautiful Bloomington, Indiana is the college town of many a high school kid's dream especially in the midwest (laughs) (laughs) it's true yes um a couple years ago i was teaching at a a pretty prominent high school's international baccalaureate program and iu was by far the most popular college option amongst uh, that cohort of kids it was definitely the top of most kids lists and it was on every kids list i would say in that program that's right and at one point, uh, so I have a, um, a master's from IU, but my first master's, I really wanted to go to IU and they waitlisted me. And I was like, fuckers. I know. I was so sad. I was so, so sad. sad. And you had to go to Notre Dame. I know. I just had to. Oh, um, God, I can't believe that. Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> <laughs> you suck. <laughs> Third rate college. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I certainly had a better experience with IU than I did with Notre Dame. But don't tell Notre Dame that. Yeah, other stories for other times. Any oozles. IU Bloom, as um, many of us call it here in this area, is in absolutely beautiful Bloomington, Indiana. Okay, it's gorgeous down there. we got rolling hills. We've got, um, it's actually really densely forested down mm-hmm. there. Um, there are a lot of reservoirs and really like deep, beautiful lakes down there. It's just gorgeous. And, and so it's like flanked by state parks and forests kind of on all sides. Um, you'll find a lot of things in Bloomington that are rare otherwise in Indiana, uh, especially once you get to that southern edge of it. Things like a Buddhist temple a world-class art museum, artisanal coffee on what seems like every street corner, um, 
lots of like creative scratch kitchen style restaurants. Um, and then the university itself is a beautiful campus. Uh, it is an R1 institution, so the highest level of research uh, university. When I talk about stats in Bloomington, what we have to keep in mind is that like census numbers and things like that are skewed often in college towns because of the big student population. Most kids, well, I shouldn't say kids, most college students who are residential at a university will still most likely be counted in their home census, Mm -hmm. but not always. So, um, and you'll kind of see where that comes in when I talk about like the population and poverty rates and stuff like that. But there are 40,000 students at the Bloomington campus of IU. Uh, There are other satellite campuses, but IU is the flagship campus. Per Wikipedia, IU's faculty, staff, and alumni include nine Nobel laureates. Damn. Twelve, I know, 12 Rhodes Scholars. Wow. 17 Marshall Scholars. Five MacArthur Fellows. Six Academy Awards. 49 Grammys. 32 Emmys. 20 Pulitzers. Four Tonys. And 95 Olympic medals. Jesus. Yeah, it's a powerhouse. Yeah. It's a powerhouse university. Um, Take that, rest of the country. Indiana's got it going on. Yeah, basically, right? And of course, most of us know it as a basketball school. Yes. um, The home of Hoosier basketball. I love the Hoosiers. Me too. Um, Well, not as much as my husband does. (laughs) but I will always root for the Hoosiers. I rooted for the Hoosiers when Bobby Knight was there. Yes. Mm, I don't really, but I live here now, so I'm like chill with them i guess um <laughs> i kept seeing this quote everywhere that i really loved where people were describing iu as a quote drinking school with a basketball problem huh okay. yeah and that is certainly kind of consistent with aside from obviously it's like huge list of academic accomplishments that it does have a strong reputation as a very intense party school it sounds like ohio state it's a lot like Ohio State. Yeah. But obviously just more prestigious and amazing. Yeah. Ohio State is just <laughs> a problem school with a drinking problem. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, one thing I thought that was really interesting that I found was I was able to find the crime logs from the campus police. Mm. So just the IU police. And when you skim their campus uh, crime logs, it is very clear that it is very much so a party school. It's tons of underage drinking busts, lots of drug busts, lots of dealing busts, and lots of sexual misconduct. Um, And that's just confined to the campus itself. Sounds about right. Yeah. And that certainly, like, when I had these, like, meek, sweet kids that were about to go to IU Bloom, I was like, get your party hat on, babies, because it's intense down there. (laughs) These sweet, sweet little IB kids. Yeah, but it is an incredible university. Like, it really is a seriously world-class education amid a really beautiful place. But like many college towns, it is kind of a, a, in many ways, like a tale of two cities in one place, Mm -hmm. really. So the population of Bloomington is about 80,000. And that is somewhat skewed by the student population again, like I said. And Monroe County is uh, where Bloomington sits is one of the counties in the state that has been most impacted by the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. In Monroe County, according to research compiled by the university, this number blew my mind, there are 63.9 opioid prescriptions per 100 people living in the county. 
So for those that would use them recreationally or outside of prescribed use, uh, these drugs are a lot easier to come by than in other places. Yeah. Yeah. As a result of, of drug use, hepatitis C and HIV rates in Monroe County have risen uh, very dramatically in recent years. And Indiana has the third largest crystal meth use in the country. And Monroe County the sixth uh, had the sixth highest use in Indiana in 2013 and the seventh in 2014. So there are a lot of, uh, basically a lot of drugs going on in Monroe County and in Bloomington. Yeah, damn. I thought it was interesting. What do you think would be the two states that are number one and number two as far as meth use in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. My mind is skewed toward Ohio. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Not Indiana doesn't, we're not talking Indiana, right? Indiana's three. Indiana's three. So number yep, one. Yep. So and I'm, two. what's one and two? I'm going to go because uh, I bet they're Midwestern. Um, I'm going to go Ohio and Nebraska. You're cute. First one is Michigan. Oh, uh, damn. Yes. And the second is New York. Damn. New York State. Uh, Illinois is fourth, right behind Indiana. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, Monroe County, like I said, is also, it's not that big geographically. So when I think about it, it's about 400 square miles. Um, and the years I found with the most complete numbers, the most recently were, um, 2013 and 14. I credit that to the state of Indiana's, um, meth website, basically, um, where I downloaded many in Excel sheet about meth. It's really interesting. Like they had it drilled down to like the type of math that people were producing like on a pie chart it was just really interesting interesting yeah so there were 62 lab busts in monroe county in 2013 and 43 in 2014 so again considering the population not being that big and the land area not being that big those numbers to me felt really really high the yeah no yeah isn't that interesting so, you know, with some of these numbers, also, I want to talk about the poverty rate in Bloomington. Yes. Um, it is shockingly high. Mm-hmm. 37.5% of the population live below the poverty line. Wow. Isn't that incredible? I would never have guessed that high. Me neither. I will say that I, I think that statistic is a little bit skewed um, also because of the student population. Yeah, yeah. Students usually report their income as being very low because it is mm-hmm. when you're a student, but they still you know, by and large come from, you know, financially stable backgrounds and financially stable families. So it might not be like, it's, it's probably not truly 37.5%. Yeah, like they have low income, but it doesn't mean that they're really struggling. They're students, they right. have other sources of support. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's even extracting that, uh, which I couldn't find like a clean number to extract that. But even with that kind of taken away, even if we subtract, say, 10% from that number, you're still looking at 27.5%, right? And that's yeah. huge. Well, and I even think, like, in, in my head, I compare it to Columbus and Ohio State because that's what I'm more familiar with. And even they have a very high poverty rate in Columbus. Yeah. Yeah, Columbus is kind of a kind of a depressed town in a lot of ways. Isn't yeah, it? once you get yeah. inside of the campus, it's pretty depressed, yeah. And that's what is interesting to me about a place like Bloomington, too, is because it's so small. Um, 
and you know we do see this with Notre Dame as well here mm-hmm. in South Bend but because the university is so closed off it feels much less in a way like much less dramatic to me because Notre Dame does not feel like a part of South Bend whereas like Bloomington and Ohio and like University of Michigan they feel so much a part of the fabric of those cities yeah and you don't have that here. Like Notre Dame is literally like basically gated, you know, yeah. doesn't, it does not have the same feel to it at all. Um, but, you know, kind of to get to the point that we're both making, like Bloomington is the kind of town where you can be in the most beautiful moneyed historic districts you've ever seen. And then drive less than two miles down Walnut Avenue and be driving around blighted roads with rundown houses mm-hmm. An area we're going to talk about first today is one of the kind of disadvantaged areas of town known as Pigeon Hill, or for short, The Hill by most um, locals. And that is kind of the example, like the classic example in Bloomington of a depressed neighborhood, basically. Historically, there were a lot of housing projects and things in The Hill. And so when people think about like poverty in Bloomington, If you're from Bloomington, your mind probably goes to that area, especially historically. So that's where we're going to start today. We're going to start in Pigeon Hill. All right. Crystal Grubb was 29 years old in 2010. I had grown up in project housing in the Pigeon Hill neighborhood in Bloomington. I couldn't find a ton of information about her personality or her background. But what I could find was a, a lot of quotes from her mom, Janice who told newspapers and the like that she, Janice, felt that they were a pretty normal family in their context. They did a lot of things together and loved each other. Uh, Janice and Crystal's dad, Tim, were married for, uh, I think, 36 years before Tim died. And they were together for a really long time. They lived in a uh, sweet little house in the Pigeon Hill area and did the best that they could. Tim was on disability because he had cancer in 2010, his cancer was in remission. So this was kind of a, a better time than most for the family with regards to Tim's health. Janice and Crystal were pretty close. It sounded like Crystal by the age of 29 had two daughters uh, in 2010, which is where our case takes place. Her daughter, Abby was six and Rose was two. Yeah. And they were really cute. Um, What I could find as far as the kind of, kid arrangement and custody arrangement was based on just kind of the scant court documents that I could find Mm -hmm. the girls. Um, I believe so crystal was not awarded custody of the girls. I believe they actually lived with Janice, the grandma. Oh, Crystal's mom. Yeah. That's, that's what I was able to surmise from the, some of the documents I found um, that may have changed. It may have fluctuated Mm -hmm. oftentimes custody situations do fluctuate in court and out of court and just Mm -hmm. based on you know i think especially in depressed areas because custody issues are expensive to deal with yes yes yeah and even like you know it's easier to come up with like a gentleman's agreement between two parents and just kind of do that without involving the law because it's going to save you a couple hundred bucks of filing you know so it could have been more flexible than that but I don't think that Crystal was in legal um, custody of her kids at the time. But, you know, despite whatever was going on in that realm, like I said, to Janice's point of view, their family was doing okay. Crystal was known to enjoy foraging. Oh, 
cool. Yeah, which is a cool pastime. She spent a lot of times in the woods, um, which again were really dense and thick down there, looking especially for ginseng and yellow root. Those were her favorite things to forage for. Crystal did have uh, a couple of run-ins with the law, mostly related to small-scale drug use. She had like a a misdemeanor charge for uh, possession of drug paraphernalia, things like that. But it seemed like she wanted to make her life better, you know? Mm-hmm. But certainly, you know, there were some some issues there and there were outlying members of her family that were involved in drug production and drug use in that area. So it's not always that easy to just kind of pick up and clean up your life. And even no. if you have all the motivation in the world, it doesn't mean you have all the resources. Exactly, exactly. And even when you have all the motivation in the world and a couple of resources, there's no such thing as a straight path, yep. right? Yep. Like stuff, progress is not linear. <laughs> sure as hell is not. No, it is not. It is a squiggly line up to the top. And it drops down sometimes. And then it comes it back does. up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um... Like I said, there's not a lot about Crystal out there biographically. One thing that I found that I was really uh, touched by, honestly, was I listened to a TEDx Bloomington talk from a photographer named Jeffrey Wolin. He was a former police photographer um, who started a project in the late 80s and early 90s of taking portraits around the projects in Pigeon Hill. Uh, He's an IU art faculty member. And so he had been taking lots of pictures in the late 80s, early 90s, in Pigeon Hill. And then in 2010, he saw a newspaper with Crystal's face on it when she had gone missing. And he remembered that he had actually taken a picture of her as a little, little kid with her siblings in Pigeon Hill. Wow. Yeah. And it actually inspired him to go um, and create a new project where he went back to the, to the hill to track down other people he had taken photos of mm-hmm. to see where they are now. So he calls it the Then and Now Project, and you can find that on his website, and it's beautiful. Interesting. Yeah, really beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous photos, really vivid. And then he had people, like, um, handwrite their stories, like, on the bottom of the images, kind of of where, you know, life had taken them in the Mm -hmm. 30 years between the photographs being taken. So there's a really fun one that I loved with a guy and then his son, and he's like a junior and it looks just like him and it was just so cute yeah so cute that takes us to september 18th of 2010 so on september 18th of 2010 uh janice saw crystal with her boyfriend Uh, his name was adrian henley at the time he was 45 on that day september 18th the two were very clearly fighting and not on good terms Uh, to Janice's observations. So uh, that was kind of, the sense I got was that it was troubling to Janice, but not necessarily totally unusual. Just not, it stuck out to her as not a great day. Yeah. Basically. On September 19th, Janice was expecting to uh, at least get a phone call from Crystal um, because Crystal would have had a phone call with her daughters that day which is why I thought that the daughters were probably with Janice, um, at least at the time. So when Janice didn't hear from Crystal, she contacted Adrian, the boyfriend, who told her that Crystal was last with him uh, at the Ferguson Dog Park, which is near Griffey Lake in Bloomington, along with his two friends, Alvin Fry and John Sergeant. 
And while they were out together uh, at the dog park, which also immediately stands out as weird because they're hanging out at a dog park, but nobody has mentioned having a dog. I would think that's suspicious. I always think it's suspicious when people don't have dogs at the dog park. Yeah. Like, are you just there to look at the dogs? I'm um, like, get away from my dog. Go away. Yeah. Yeah, I know. What are you doing? Um, are you going to steal my dog? I just think it, I just thought it was very strange. Yeah. Um, so while they were uh, allegedly at the dog park, Crystal, according to Adrian Henley, quote, got mad and stormed off into the woods. Griffey Lake is a at the north kind of edge of Bloomington, kind of right before you start to get back into some pretty rural um, countryside. Mm-hmm. And it's a really beautiful reservoir. And like I said, like to me, from what I could see, it kind of is like an unofficial mark between like, like when you hit Griffey Lake, you know, if you're leaving Bloomington, that's when you kind of become in the country, you know? Ah, got it, got it. You're out of the city. Yeah, exactly. And if you're coming into Bloom, you hit Griffey Lake and you're like, oh, I'm about to be in Bloomington, you know? Hey, I'm here. So the dog park is actually across the street from Griffey Lake. And it's across a pretty big street, Old State Road 37. Okay. It kind of splits between the two. So based on that information, uh, Janice reported Crystal missing at 7.29 p.m. that day on the 19th, sharing with police what Adrian had shared with her. When questioned by police detective Sarah Carnes on the 20th, the three men changed their story. Hmm. Instead of hanging out at the dog park like they originally said, right? Sus. <laughs> Sus. What they were actually doing was cooking meth at an abandoned water treatment facility on a rural section of Old 37. Okay. Yeah. That's a big, da- that's a big change in your stories, guys. It is quite a big change in the story. What I found really like twisted cute in a twisted way was that like you know how when you get to rural areas things have like really cute names they were cooking meth on the banks of the bean blossom creek and mean so it was blossom? like bean blossom oh, like bean beans. blossom i thought you said yeah. mean blossom and i was like that's a good name for a batch of meth <laughs> it would be really cool actually wouldn't it and so i um one of the small little sidebars I went down was the cute names for things down there. Oh, yeah. So you got Bean Blossom. You got a town called Needmore, Indiana. You got Gnawbone, Stonehead, Story. Nice and simple. Like Mount that. Healthy. It's like, oh, all right. I need that in my life. Yeah. Uh, there was one that really got me. Where was it? It was so cute. I think it was like Lonely Head or something like that. Aww. I was like, wow, that's... Nobody likes yeah. Lonely Head. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely, definitely not. <laughs> uh, here's Buddha, Indiana. Okay. Um, yeah, I could do this all day and I, I'll stop now. But um, all that to say, I was charmed popcorn indiana oh. i found a map the other day of all of the uh chicago neighborhoods and who they were named after oh really that's interesting that is interesting i'd be yeah. curious about that yeah anyway i just thought that was all really pretty delightful so um cute tommy tangents yeah sorry 
<laughs> so back to the darkness. So, uh, so what they admit to was cooking meth out there um, by the creek. And what I, so basically what I tried to do was to uh, take to Google Earth and figure out precisely where that was. What I was able to surmise was that it was actually um, a couple miles north of Griffey Lake on Business 37. So you've got Old 37 and Business 37, and those are actually two different roads. And Business 37 gets really rural really fast as well, but it kind of runs alongside I-69. So I, I believe that this abandoned spot that they were cooking at was very close to what is now a, a cremation place Oh, um, along that road. That's what I, I kind of was able to figure out from just triangulating these maps. Uh, what that led me to, to find out was that it is extremely densely forested. Yeah. Um, definitely looks like a, um, an easy place to get away with that type of activity, basically. <laughs> You're, you know, super tree-lined roads. You're not going to be able to see into the woods to know what's going yeah, on there. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So a really difficult area to search, but officers went to the area and searched and found nothing. The Grubb family pulled together some money to run off flyers and posted them around town. Those flyers had to kind of compete for attention with similar flyers of the next case I'm going to talk about, that of Lauren Spearer later. But they were able to kind of wrestle up a reward offering in Crystal's disappearance Mm -hmm. of about $1,000. Okay. Sounds like that was a lot for them. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. They really had to, um, they really had to like pool their income. And yeah, yeah, it was not easy. Not easy. So on September 25th, Griffey Lake is searched. Griffey Lake was actually searched by one person that day, a conservation officer. This is a pretty large body of water. So I was impressed by that person's um, commitment and also really sad Mm -hmm. that that was all that was out there. Yeah. Nothing was found in Griffey Lake by that person. In the next few days, officers would continue to search uh, the original area of that alleged meth cook site. And they kept combing that area and kept finding nothing. On September 30th, volunteers uh, were able to join the search as well, um, combing the area looking for any sign of crystal. No sign was found. No press conferences were held in Crystal's case, so it certainly stayed um, very much kind of a grassroots effort, I would say. Was she presumed dead or just presumed missing? Presumed missing. So um, one of the quotes I'm going to bring up later, but I'll kind of preview it now, was that according to police, they considered Crystal to be quote unquote transient. Mm. And so the search was kind of, for lack of a better word, half-assed, I think, for that reason. Okay. Even though the information they got was she was part of a meth cook and disappeared. (laughs) Like, uh... (laughs) Guys, yeah. uh Yeah. Did we do we know was she at all involved in the meth cooking or selling or any of it? That's a really good question. She um did not have any charges on her record for okay. sale of drugs. She had charges on her record for possession okay. of drugs. Yeah. Adrian and the two friends were kind of during this time arrested on the charges of uh, manufacturing that meth. Okay. Um, at least in Adrian's case, those uh, charges were later vacated. 
Mm. So, and I was very annoyed reading that, but whatever. So yeah, I, I do, I, I can't draw a conclusion because there's no concrete information on that. My sense is that she was using, but not selling. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. It's not like she's part of a fucking meth cartel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, nothing implied to me that at all. Okay. Um, and even like stuff I found that did kind of imply about her drug use was like, I don't want to say that there's like light crystal meth use, but if there was light crystal meth use, I think that's what crystal was up to. Well, here's the thing. Like, I feel like it does get framed as like, oh, if you use meth then you're fucking like meth space scabs addict. And that's right. It's not the truth. There are stages along that spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think so too. I think so too. And that's, um, that's one of the parts of these kind of two like interwoven stories that I want to kind of put a pin in that to okay. come back to. Okay. okay. All right. So on October 1st, so we're about 10 days after Crystal went missing, a farmer was harvesting corn on his land along Showers Road, which is a field kind of just across from Business 37. So, like, you'd be on Showers Road, you'd be in this guy's field. The other side of his field would be Business 37. So mm-hmm. his land is kind of squished in between. That farmer found Crystal's body. She was naked, aside from her underwear. And her autopsy would later show that she had been strangled to death by somebody's bare hands. Wow. Yeah. Um, I want to now play actually some audio of Crystal's mom, Janice, because one of the things that Crystal's mom did to kind of keep awareness going on about her daughter's disappearance and then murder uh, was that she actually has organized a uh, yearly walk uh, in Crystal's honor that actually kind of started to bring in other missing persons as well that, that really? she Janice wanted to honor. So she, for example, um, when Lauren Spear went missing, who I'm going to start talking about in a minute, Janice included the areas that Lauren was last seen at mm-hmm. in the March. Oh, wow. Uh, when, yeah. When the Delphi girls were killed, uh, she included signage and um, pro, you know, protest speaking basically about... Wow. Abby and Libby as well. So she has really kind of kept her pulse on, you know, these other cases. And she's really been very committed to uh, using her kind of corner of the world to keep awareness of whatever she could. Way to freaking go. I I do love it when parents are able to, to do stuff like that, to find something that they can do in the midst of all the tragedy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, next week we're going to talk about theories and, and some aftermath, but I will say a couple of these things before I play um, a little blurb of Janice's. There was DNA found mm-hmm. on on and near Crystal's body. That DNA is in police possession. This case happened in 2010, and an arrest has never been made in relation ah. to Crystal's murder. Okay. So that's why uh, next week we'll be talking about theories as far as what happened to her okay. and theories about why there's been no movement as far as what happened to her as mm-hmm. well. Um, so I'm going to play you. This is Janice speaking at 
the walk that was for the 10 year anniversary. So that was um, just very recently, actually, of Crystal's death. She organizes this walk every day on October 1st, which is the day that Crystal's body was found. Mm -hmm. In the years since Crystal's death, uh, her father, Timmy, did die of his cancer. And then her, uh, the father of her children died of the same cancer during the same year, which was 2018, early oh 2018. God. Yes. And Janice actually lost another daughter, Bessie, to a murder as well. Oh, my God. This poor family. How is Janice yes. like? Oh, my God. Janice. Still trucking. If yeah. you hear this at all. Like, we love you. We love you so much. And those kids, too. We love them. Yeah. That is so much for one family to go through. It is. It is. And you'll hear it when you hear her speak. Okay. So I'm going to I'm going to play it now. giving up that is so far what i'm going to share as far as crystal's case goes so we're going to pivot now to 2011 and we're going to shift our focus to lauren spear so just one year later about six months later Eh, gosh what are months yeah well more like nine months later but yeah what is time what is time anyway we're going to talk to great degree about in many ways, like the difference between the amount of information that you can find about both of these cases. Mm -hmm. But to put it really frankly, just right now, right out of the gate, I wanted to give as much time to Crystal as I could. And with the information that I had, which is obviously not as much as I wanted to have, you know what I mean? And like when you search for Crystal Grubbs on YouTube, for example, you will find four videos that are relevant to her. You'll find... A 30-second clip of Nancy Grace mentioning her. Doesn't even use her name. You'll find two clips of uh, scenes from The Walk, including the one that I just played. And you'll find a clip from this, I believe they're the Southern Indiana EVP hunters. They're a ghost hunting group that went to the cemetery that Crystal is buried at to try to communicate with her. That is all you will find on YouTube. Wow. Conversely, when you search for Lauren Spearer, you are going to find podcast upon podcast, YouTube video among YouTube video. You will find lifetime inspired specials. You will find a bevy of information. Mm. So there's a, just a big difference. Are we going to guess the demographic differences between? Them? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Would you like to take a little guess? And I guess so. This is an important time to talk about the other thing I want to talk about, which is that. Um, Lauren Spearer and Crystal Grubb are both, uh, Crystal's obviously deceased. Lauren is missing, presumed deceased. Okay. They're both equally missing, equally killed, most likely in Lauren's case. Equal tragedy, right? Yeah. So I, I yeah. never want it to sound like we're like making light of Lauren's case in contrast mm-hmm. to Crystal's case. It's just that there is a necessary conversation about the difference between kind of how both cases were handled, particularly in the local community and nationally. 
as yeah. well. And I think that that is a really important conversation to have. And, you know, I think I'm just full of just negativity right now. Yeah, but... <laughs> I know. I know. Me too. Me too. But it's something that I think we're starting to talk about a little bit more, but it is really just grossly apparent and not just because we're true crime fans, but because it affects how people get justice and how people get investigated and how crimes get solved. And I think it's also on my mind. So because of the link that I sent you last night. Yes. Oh my gosh, dude. I sent Tommy a link last night. I was just browsing through the local news here in Chicago um, that a man in Pullman, in the Pullman neighborhood of Chicago, um, which is on the far south side, around 119th, which if you're not from Chicago. Wow, that's means, really far south. Yeah, yeah, far south, was walking past an abandoned home and heard a woman screaming. And when he got the police to investigate, they found a woman naked and chained inside an abandoned house who claimed that she had been there for weeks. Hmm. And I just... I know. Tell me that doesn't sound like Anthony Sowell. Yeah. Yeah. I know that that woman is not going to get justice. I mm-hmm. know that that case is not going to be investigated properly. Mm-hmm. We also, and the first thing I said to you, and I, I believe this very much, is that that is not the work of a first time offender. No. That is the work of a serial offender. So what my mind immediately went to was when we um, had talked about, is there an active serial killer in Chicago? That was immediate. Yeah. Yeah. But like, that's something that I would like for us to continue to be loud about because Mm -hmm. to my mind, there's no way that's not connected to other disappearances. There's no way that was a one-time offense. Whoever Mm -mm. did that has done it before. Yeah, that's not something that you do for the first time, like, and have it go on for that long or, yeah, I just, mm-hmm. I'm very skeptical of that. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, like, that's kind of, like, where my mind is right now as we're talking about this. And if I sound yeah. cynical, it it's because of that stuff. So, again, I you think are. back to, because I am, but back mm-hmm. to the point, like, both of these cases are tragedies. Both of these women are missing or lost their lives and both deserve equal investigation. And I think that that's what we want to do is give them equal time. Yeah. And, and what's going to end up, I don't know if our listeners will be frustrated by it, but I certainly was frustrated in the scope of my research of it was like, you can research Lauren's case for hours upon hours upon hours. You can find a billion different people's takes on it. We will be the first podcast that I could find to talk about Crystal's case. I found one that talked about it in a very, very cursory way. Um, But other than that, like there's, there's just nothing out there. And that just, so like there will be like, as far as the timestamp goes, uh, the Lauren section probably will be longer because there is more information and that just bothers me. And I thought about trimming it and then I was like, no, because that's not the not accurate and i'm definitely committed to accuracy you know but certainly like i had that push pull in my own consciousness about it you know Mm -hmm. so after all of that bloviating okay we don't bloviate (laughs) we discuss wow did you hear that voice crack am i 12 (laughs) youch youch you're 12 out of 70 (laughs) yeah so i talked about the pigeon hill area of bloomington we're going to um, kind of take ourselves now to the 
part of Bloomington that most people are probably familiar with, that kind of downtown, booming, college towny place that when we think of Bloomington is probably what we think of. Okay. So uh, we find ourselves now in the early summer of 2011. Lauren Spear is a 20-year-old sophomore at IU who just finished her finals and is ready to have a good time celebrating the end of another school year. She was born on January 17th, 1991. She was originally from Scarsdale, New York, which is an affluent community and was a pretty typical member of a student community kind of known jokingly by many as the Coasties, which (laughs) were, yeah, apparently IU is, and I didn't really know this, is uh, pretty popular amongst wealthy kids from the East Coast, New York State, Connecticut, Massachusetts, so they, they pull a lot of, of students from that region. I didn't know that. And so a lot of Coasties, which is kind of represents that particular set of the student body, flocked to IU, often in groups of friends planning to go to college together, which, you know, we find here too. Like a lot of my seniors last year were like, so-and-so's going to be my roommate at IU, you know. Aww. So, yeah, it was pretty sweet. So uh, Lauren had come to IU to study textile merchandising. IU has actually a very prominent program for textile merchandising. I actually knew that. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I think my tattoo artist went there. Really? My tattoo artist did textile design, and then she went into tattooing, and then when she started a family, she went back into textile design. Oh, cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so kind of similar to that, probably. Uh, Lauren dreamed of a career in fashion. She was raised Jewish and was actually really active in the Jewish community on campus and in Bloomington. The summer between her freshman and sophomore years, she actually spent uh, in Israel. Lauren also had a rare disorder, a rare condition called long QT syndrome. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I am. Okay. I only am because I, I <laughs> knew somebody whose daughter had it. Uh. Um For those that don't know, uh, long QT syndrome is a cardiac condition, uh, basically, that is due to an abnormal pattern uh, in the QT interval of one's heartbeat. So it what? No, no. Are you laughing at me? No, you're good. Doing the best I can. I know. No, because (laughs) I'm laughing because you know everything occurs to me in pictures. Mm. So the QT interval you can see on the little charts on like the heartbeat charts. Mm -hmm. So like it's just it extends. Yeah, exactly. So like when you see that peak and then that smaller Mm -hmm. little hill, Uh that hill kind of getting long and like kind of longer and flatter. Yeah. Is a long QT syndrome. Um, So it's a very literal name. It's a very literal name, which is why I like it. Yeah, the QT is long. Yeah. Basically. But yes, it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. The person that I knew who had a daughter with it, um, when I knew this person, she had a college-age daughter with long QT syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, And it was very worrisome. Mm -hmm. It causes an irregular heartbeat, um, which can result most commonly in fainting, but also sometimes in seizures or sudden cardiac death. So they have to be really, really careful, like anytime they're playing sports in the heat, exactly. swimming, mm-hmm. anything like that. Yep. It's very much triggered by stress, um, mm-hmm. physical stress, um, mostly. So people with long QT syndrome have to, like you said, watch their 
watch their exercise, watch these things. Uh, they usually take beta blockers mm-hmm. um, and other medications. This is an interesting statistic. For people with long QT who survive cardiac arrest and remain untreated, the risk of death within 15 years is greater than 50%. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So they tend to die young. Yeah, they're scary. They're, yeah. It's scary. Um, actually, I remember going to the hospital one time. Um, spoiler alert, I was having a panic attack. But one of the questions that they asked me <laughs> was, um, do you have a family history of sudden death at a young age? And I was like, uh, no, I hope that's not what's happening to me. And the doctor goes, yeah, I hope not too. That is not what to ask somebody having a panic attack. Yeah. Yeah. ER doctors do better. Thank you for that. That was. Yeah. Thank you for that. Fun story. I also had my first panic attack in Indiana in the Hoosier Dome. Huh? How about that? I was wee. (laughs) Aw, you were a little babe. A little little baron. Um, so long QT is dangerous. It is um, manageable, but still dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I'm putting that out there, that this is something that Lauren had in her life. Yes. So Lauren enrolled in IU in 2009. Um, she enrolled along with her boyfriend. His name is Jesse Wolf, um, and their friend Jay, Jason Rosenbaum. His full name was Jason, but he went by Jay. I'll refer to him as Jay. Mm-hmm. Um they had actually all met at a summer camp in Pennsylvania, and there was like a whole clique of them that had become friends at summer camp that planned to come to IU together in That's 2009. Cute. I know, right? So she kind of came to college with a social group ready to go. How lucky is that? No rolling the dice on some weirdo roommate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that ends up being up your butt for 15 years and counting. Can't get rid of me. Can't nope, get rid of me. I don't want to. You could um, think of all the other people you could have roomed with. Seriously, when I think about our freshman class. Anyway, so um, on June 3rd, Lauren started off a night of fun. But the way that she started off that night was confusing. Now, when I say June 3rd, um, this is like technically everything that happens happens after midnight. Okay. But it's a Thursday night into the wee hours of a Friday morning. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so the date is June 3rd, but it's like, quote unquote, the night of June 2nd. Okay, okay, so, that's what I was about to ask. Got yeah. It. So uh, June 2nd of 2011 was game two of the NBA Finals. It was the Dallas Mavericks versus Miami Heat. This was a pretty exciting game because uh, Dallas would go on to win that year. And Jesse, uh, Lauren's boyfriend, was staying in to watch the game. So Lauren told him that she, too, would be staying in. Not to watch the game, but if he's not going out, why am I going to bother? Fair. That was either a fib or she changed her plans. Mm. At 12.30 a.m., Lauren left her apartment with her friend David Ron. This case relies heavily on surveillance footage. The only surveillance image released to the public in Lauren's case is from uh, that 12.30 a.m. timestamp when she left her apartment building. She is seen in that image walking upright, smile on her face. She's wearing a white t-shirt, black leggings, cute, casual, out for the night kind of look. So I want to be clear that when we're talking about these apartments, we're not talking about campus housing. All of these students lived off campus in uh, kind of this cluster of townhomes, condos, luxury apartments closer to downtown Bloomington. So not, it would be like a 15 minute like trip to campus basically got it got it 
Lauren's apartment was at a building called Smallwood Plaza, which was located at College Avenue and 9th Street. So she and David walked to a party at Jay Rosenbaum's apartment at five North townhomes. These locations will come back, which is why I'm being so specific. Okay. On College and 11th or Morton and 11th, depending on kind of which intersection you would walk to it from. This was about a 0.3 mile walk. It would have taken them about five or six minutes or so. So a very short walk. Jay Rosenbaum was basically throwing a small party. He lived next door in that building to uh, these two guys who were roommates, Mike Beth and Corey Rossman. Lauren would spend most of this night hanging out with Corey Rossman. Allegedly, Corey at some point had told Jay that he wanted to sleep with Lauren. And at some point in the night, Jay was told by somebody, he's not totally sure in his recollection who, that Lauren had already been drinking and had snorted Clonopin and potentially Coke that, that evening prior to getting to the apartment or at the apartment. Okay. So uh, we do have some potential kind of other drug use at play here. Yeah. Uh, Lauren and Corey were seen on surveillance entering a sports bar at 146. So they leave the party at Jay's apartment and they go to this place called Kilroy's Sports Bar. This is about, I would say, an 8 to 10 minute walk. If I'm walking it with my short little legs, it's probably an 11 minute walk. Maybe a 7 minute walk for me. Yeah, you are insane. So Kilroy's um, was and is a very, very popular spot for IU kids to hang out at. It is, it's called Kilroy Sports Bar, but it's very much, um, has more of like a club feel to it. Okay. Multiple bars, lots of TVs for that. Kind of more bar-esque time, but lots of lights, dancing. They had a beach-themed sand-covered patio, which uh, is where Lauren and Corey hung out while they were there. Lauren was known to use a fake ID. We don't know this night if she was using her fake ID to buy drinks or if Corey was buying her drinks and bringing them back to her. Okay. Um, but they were only at Kilroy's for 41 minutes. While they were there, Lauren was drinking a lot and was drunk enough when she left Kilroy's to leave without her shoes and without her phone. Ah, okay. Yeah. At 2.27, they exit the bar and they begin their walk back to Smallwood, Lauren's building. At 2.30, they are seen on camera entering Smallwood. Like I said before, Lauren's level of intoxication was very high mm-hmm. and um, would have been very, very obvious to anybody observing her. She was not able to walk upright. She was leaning on Corey uh, quite a bit. Mm. At some point during one of these walks in the course of her evening, she had fallen down and face planted. Yeah. And was too drunk to catch herself and just fell straight in her face. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So she actually had like kind of a black eye sort of blossoming on her face kind of throughout the night. Now, while they were in the hallway at Smallwood, approaching Lauren's apartment and remember all these um kind of people in this particular kind of clique or community mm-hmm. live in these same buildings so Corey and Lauren went to this guy Zach Oaks who's a friend of Lauren's boyfriend Jesse Zach is with three of his friends Zach observes how drunk and out of it Lauren seems to be and is like dude what are you doing here with Lauren she's wasted uh, so Zach was trying to talk Lauren into going back home 
uh, safely without bed. Yeah. Yeah. He was trying to get her to go to bed. Zach was close friends with her boyfriend, Jesse. So from what I and there are different schools of thought on this. Um, I thought that from what I was seeing and from his statements, Zach's intentions seemed pretty pure and honest um, that he was legit pretty worried about her. Corey was like, nah, dude, I got this. She's fine. (laughs) Zach disagrees. No. It comes to fisticuffs Uh and uh, they fight shortly. Okay. So they fought. Corey took a punch to the head from Zach that he says will cause him to lose whatever was left of his memory uh, for pretty much the rest of that evening. That'd be a pretty hard hit or he was already intoxicated. And yeah. Yeah. And he, he certainly was drinking, but not, Mm -hmm. he wasn't falling over. Yeah. Like Lauren was, you know what I mean? So um, at two forty eight, they leave Smallwood. I presume that Corey was like, screw this. Like, I don't need this guy. Like, salting my game basically and like knocking on her door or whatever so let's leave and we'll head back to my building so they leave smallwood at 248 and all this time they, lauren is being like dragged from place to place like pretty essentially much. like a rag doll pretty much yeah. yeah she's actually seen on surveillance footage walking along an alleyway between smallwood and five north Corey's building and on some of that surveillance footage she was so drunk at one point that Corey um, like lifted her up like a sack of potatoes and slung yeah. her over his shoulder to carry her along. That was the image I had in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lauren was four foot eleven and ninety four pounds, so this was not a difficult task for yep. for Corey to do. So at some point in that alleyway, Lauren's keys and purse were later recovered. Presumably, they had fallen off of her person while she was being caveman carried by Corey down the alley. Okay. At 2.51, they enter 5 North again. Real quick, these times are very exact because they're all in surveillance footage. I was going to say, yeah. The only image that has ever been released to the public is the image of her leaving her apartment originally. Why that is, to my belief, is out of respect for her family because in the other images... She would have been so wasted. It would be like, what's the point of showing this? It's just going to feel exploitive and it's not helping her case any. Yeah, you don't um, want to. Parents don't want to see that. No, and it's not yeah. necessary. Like the image of her leaving Smallwood originally was very pretty clear. You could see how she had her hair. You could see uh-huh. um, the outfit she was wearing. It would have been very useful mm-hmm. for um, anyone that may have spotted her that night. Yeah. So I've seen some frustration that like. You know, we, there are all these images and they all exist. Why aren't they in the public well, domain? Well, would they actually help solve the crime? Like if the police exactly. have them and they're like, okay, we have the time stamps. We have where she is at what time and what building she's going to and from. Mm-hmm. That's important. But yeah. I think as true crime fans, we sometimes want more information than we need. Yes. Yes, totally. Uh, and sometimes I think more visuals than are respectful. You know? Yeah. 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 So, uh, like I said, at 2.51, they enter 5 North again, uh, and they go to Corey's apartment, which, remember, he shares with this guy, Mike Beth. So Mike Beth reports that they were both pretty drunk, but that Lauren was significantly worse off visually. Like, you took one look at this girl, and she was just beyond the pale intoxicated. Corey had puked on the stairs coming in, so he was definitely 
you know, not at his uh, fighting best either. So Mike Beth put Corey to bed. Good for you, Mike. Good for you, Mike. So and then Mike, also good for you, Mike, tried to get Lauren to stay and sleep it off on their couch. Mm -hmm. There is some speculation out there that this was an insidious um, move on Mike's part. We'll talk about that when we talk about theories. Okay, Okay. I personally don't particularly think so. I think he just wanted to keep her contained to one place. Um, yeah. Listen, we've all tried to contain a drunk friend in one room. <laughs> haven't we? Haven't, haven't we, all? we all? Yes. Yes. I also saw other stuff that was like, there's no way that she walked all these places without shoes on. And I was like, I remember so many nights. <laughs> I have oh, flashes man. of memories of many nights. Yes. Yes. Do you remember the one time that lost a flip-flop at a frat party and one of the frat boys brought it back the next day. (laughs) Yeah, that was weird, but also had that je ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, And I think I was thinking a lot about this case because uh, and like thinking back to our college days because there are so many things that I saw people like kind of up in arms about like that would never happen, that would never happen, that would never happen. And, like, you and I are close enough in age to Lauren that we probably had fairly similar college experiences. Well, so you know? this was in 2011, and we were yeah. in college 2005 to 2009. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's three years younger than me. She's the same age as my little brother. And I just remember thinking, like, like there's all this conversation about, like, um, kind of, like, the responsibility we have for each other communally. Mm-hmm. And it got me to thinking about, like, um, the different frat parties that we would go to in college uh-huh. and how on the rare occasion that we ever went to the SIGAP house, which was, like, the nasty boy fraternity, we you, you knew that you did not have a, a presupposition of good care, right? Yes. Like, good community care. Yes. Versus if you go to a party at the Cap house, they're going to bring back your flip-flops the next day. Yeah. yeah. But then also um, the nights when it was like we're just drinking in the dorms mm-hmm. with each other. And we kind of knew that each we were going to take care of each other. So they're like all guards were down. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think like. Yeah, like there's been a lot of um, commentary about like, like, wow, these kids really failed Lauren. Um and then I look back and I, I think that these each individual player kind of has a different level of um, kind of on the spectrum of culpability, I guess, or responsibility kind of through this night. You know what I mean? I mean, I want to hear the rest of the story, but I also feel like, you know, when you're a bunch of like late teens and 20 somethings, you know, what is your expected culpability? Right. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, what are you doing that you think is responsible? Right. So Mike for example, is like, stay here, sleep it off on our couch. Mm-hmm. You know, he he might know that Corey had been making moves on Lauren, but he might not have known that, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So, but what happened was that Lauren refused and she said she wanted to go back to her own apartment or she wanted to keep partying. So, and she had been, uh, according to Mike's account, asking him to drink with her. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just hang out here and drink a little bit. Mike tried to stall her, uh, and he called Jay, who was um, through the original party that um, this all started at. Mike sounds like he's trying his best. I know. I think he really was. Um, so Jay Rosenbaum was closer friends with Lauren. Like I said, they were part of that like summer camp uh, group of, of people that came to IU together. So, yeah. uh, And he lives next door to Mike. 
So Mike calls Jay and says, hey, can you come over and please take care of her? Jay came over and according to him, uh, his account, he asked about the bruise on her face. And she said that she didn't remember how she got it. At yeah. one point, she borrowed Jay's phone and she made two phone calls. One to David Ron, the guy that she had originally walked over to uh, Jay's apartment with or way earlier in the night that stayed at Jay's party. Yeah. Um, and didn't continue the night with her, as well as another unnamed male friend, but neither answered the phone. Okay. She left at 4.30 a.m. Jay Rosenbaum watching her leave was the last time that Lauren would ever be seen. Five North Apartments is kind of like smack dab in the middle between you've got College Avenue on one side and Morton Avenue to the other side, 11th Street kind of running north, and then... Uh, college is, I believe, the um, east, and Morton is the west. They were okay. equidistant to kind of get to her final destination. Okay. College Avenue was the more logical route because it was more well lit. Yeah. It, if she had taken College Avenue, she only would have had to walk a hundred feet before being picked up on some on the first surveillance camera uh, okay. on that strip. There was no such footage. There were also certainly some cameras on Morton Avenue as well. She was not picked up there either. Okay. So there is no further footage of Lauren Spear. And the last person to see her was Jay Rosenbaum, who watched her leave. And it appeared to him that she was heading towards College Avenue. Okay. The next morning, Jesse, the boyfriend, sends her a text. He gets a very quick response. From an employee at Kilroy's who had found her phone on their patio. So as a result of this, Jesse Wolf reported Lauren missing right away to the Bloomington police and an exhaustive search and investigation began. Lauren's parents, Charlene and Robert Spearer arrived in Bloomington that day. All of the young men involved lawyered up very, very, very quickly. Well, I, it sounds like they come from, savvy well-off backgrounds exactly and i'm not yeah i'm not saying well-off as like an insult or like whatever but it it means that their families are probably a little bit more savvy yes yeah exactly and yeah this has been something that like again you'll see some spitfire about kind of amongst the true crime community about like god that's suspicious that they lawyered up so fast but Anyone will tell you when you're being, when you are involved in any way, shape, or form in proximity to a crime or an issue or a mm-hmm. missing person and you have the means, you should lawyer up whether or not you have involvement in that case. If you ever go missing and I start to be interviewed by police, I'm lawyering up. You have to. You have to. It's just, it's the responsible thing to do if you have the means to do it. And these mm-hmm. kids had the means to do it. Yeah. So uh, you'll see a lot of criticism for all the lawyering up. I don't think it's particularly fair. I think there's a lot of things to scrutinize these young men about, but that is not one of them. Mm-hmm. Jesse's father also came to Bloomington and pretty much spirited him away back home just about immediately to get him out of the kind of crosshair for all yeah. of that as well. I kind of, that I'll kind of criticize because I feel like you should stay around for the investigation and make yourself available, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So uh, Charlene and Robert Spear. Lauren's parents immediately took to media to speak out about their daughter's disappearance. By June 5th, Lauren's name was trending on Twitter. 
Her parents began lining up appearances on the Today Show on Good Morning America, as well as other, like, lots and lots of news stations in their home state of New York, as well as in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of people joined the ground search for Lauren. Yeah. And the Spear family was able to put up a $100,000 reward for information. IU would add another 50K on top of that. And over the next year or so, that award would be upwards of $250,000. So I wanted to also play for you a short clip of Lauren's parents speaking. So this is about to be her dad. He's taking a long time to start talking. was in a, a press briefing about two weeks after Lauren's disappearance. Mm-hmm. Um, press briefings happened daily for months. Wow. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so when we talk about a case, and, and you probably remember this case, like kind of blowing up on the national stage, this was definitely mm-hmm. one of them. Like I said, these parents were everywhere. Today show, Good Morning America, um, yeah. all over the place. Like contrasting the two audio clips Mm -hmm. and kind of thinking about what I hear out of each person. He sounds planned, intentional, and intentional because he knows that he will be heard. He expects to be heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very staid, right? And... You hear him list off the ways in which um, they've been helped, right? And those things really did happen. And then you contrast that with the the kind of desperation in uh, Janice Grubb's voice when yeah. she says she can't do this alone. Yeah. You know, she feels like she's doing it alone. And, and um, you hear her being like... You hear her being ignored. You hear the frustration in her voice. You hear that she has tried and she has begged and she is at her wit's end. Yeah, exactly. And so you would see those differences kind of come up in the way that the searches would go as well. So hundreds and hundreds of volunteers came out to search for Lauren. There were air searches, ground searches, uh, searches on horseback, searches of several of the bodies of water in the area. Um, including Lake Monroe and Lake Lemon, because anonymous tips were provided uh, that either of those places could be of interest. One of the, to me, one of the most stunning kind of measures that were taken in the search for Lauren was uh, at some point in the summer, 
uh, a tip came in that somebody had seen young men carrying out a lot of garbage on the morning, uh, like the early morning hours, like the five, six o'clock morning mm-hmm. hours of, of June 3rd. So what the police did is they figured out where, what landfill and what section of landfill the garbage from that area of Bloomington would be taken. Hmm. And in August of 2011, conducted a nine-day search of that landfill in Pimento, Indiana, which is just outside of Terre Haute, for clues on the disappearance. Those uh, police officers, it was a team of nine, and they searched over 40 tons of garbage. Wow. Yeah, or I'm sorry, it was a nine-day search, 30 officers, 40 tons of garbage. Wow. Mm -hmm. Jesus. Isn't that crazy? That's so funny. We were just talking about, like, searching dump sites, like, last episode. (laughs) We were, weren't we? Um, So... Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of searches were kind of undertaken. Obviously, the Grubb family is hearing about Lauren Spears' case, right? Um, And like I said, when you search for Crystal's case, you're not going to get a lot of information. Uh, When you search like newspapers.com, you'll find good stuff, but it is sparse. Mm Mm-hmm. And in one article, kind of right after Lauren's disappearance, the Bloomington Police Department was asked by uh, this particular, the Times Mail of Bedford, Indiana, a reporter there, um, emailed and asked about the disparity in um, the way that the cases were investigated. Uh, To quote his email, he says, there is one major distinction in the Crystal Grubb case and Lauren Spears' disappearance. That distinction is that Crystal was known to be homeless and lived a somewhat transient lifestyle. Lauren had somewhere she was expected to be, and Crystal, unfortunately, did not. Mm. He said that in Grubb's case, there was conflicting information, even from those who were last in contact with her, which makes it difficult to formulate a search plan. I don't know if it's just me, but I do not feel that from what we know about Lauren's night and what we know about Crystal's last couple of days Mm -hmm. that either women particularly had a quote-unquote place they were expected to be yeah and neither woman was with a particularly trustworthy set of witnesses either yeah no it sounds like both set of witnesses were changing their story and well might you know didn't necessarily have a straight story to tell Right. Drugs involved in both cases, mm-hmm. intoxication involved in both cases, the unreliable narrators of several, you know, 21 to 23 year old men that were drunk, you know, yeah. involved with this girl throughout the course of the night. Both went missing from public spaces, from a dog park and from like an apartment complex with tons of videos. Yes. Yes. Not exactly, to my mind, a huge disparate you know, um, field between the two of them. Yeah. And even if Crystal was homeless, she had a family that she clearly checked in on that. It was said that she had a planned phone call with her kids that day. Exactly. So she did actually have somewhere to be. She had, she, the summer that she was to be was in that phone call. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and, and we don't know what Lauren was supposed to get up to the next day. Yeah. So, Uh, All that to say, I am just going to call some bullshit on that particular statement from the BPD. Yeah. Um, 
What I will say is I think that the BPD and the Indiana State Police and the Indiana University Police exhausted their resources when it came to looking for Lauren. Yes. And here's the thing, that Lauren also came from a family that had more resources to put pressure on the police. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's where a lot of this disparity comes from. Like, we can have, like, a more in-depth conversation as to, like, the weight of the quote-unquote less dead when it comes to homelessness and different demographics and things like that. But I think it's that on top of Lauren's family had the money to hire all the lawyers and to hire the PR team and to travel Mm -hmm. to go talk to Nancy Grace and all of these other people. Exactly, exactly. And to put up a huge reward. Huge. Right? So it was a $1,000 reward versus a $250,000 reward, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So those two things, hugely, hugely different. Which Um, also, I don't, like, Crystal's mom, it sounds like, has dedicated everything Yes. To trying to help not only this case, but the other kids, like the other yeah. children that have gone missing. And yeah. so it's not like she's not doing anything. She just no. has different means to do it. Exactly. And she is uh, dogged in her commitment to this annual walk. There were a couple of years I saw where um, like there's a, a memorial page for Crystal on Facebook. And there were a couple like going back into the events for the last like several years. There were a couple of years where, um, you know, the Facebook page would say that like Janice is not in great health this year. Mm-hmm. So and so is taking over the walk. So even if Janice couldn't do it, she was making damn sure that somebody did. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like this is how hard that she had to work to, you know, kind of have, you know, 55, 60 people marching with her in Bloomington. Mm hmm. Versus the the massive national media attention that Lauren Spears' case got. So that is where we're going to pause part one. Part two, we will be talking about theories of what happened with both women. We'll be digging a little bit more. um, As far as Crystal's case, we're going to look more into the the boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll look more into kind of the geography of the area. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, what information is out there as far as her autopsy. In Lauren's case, we'll deep dive a little bit more into this cast of characters, all these different young men that um, came into contact with her that night, Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the theories that people have about what may have happened to her, uh, including a pretty popular theory that she was a victim of one of the most terrifying and prolific serial killers in in modern history. Ooh. Ooh. Yes. Israel Keys. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Ah, interesting. Do you think there's any weight to that? Tell me, do you think there's any weight to that one? No, I have my own theory on this one. Yeah, okay. Um, I'll wait. I'll wait for the real theories. But I was like, is there any actual evidence that Israel Keys was involved? Or is it just like, we need a fantastical story? There there are some interesting correlations. Okay. We'll say that. Okay. So, and, and there are enough people out there that think that that is what happened to kind of keep that theory afloat. Mm hmm. I would say it's it's not the theory that I personally have Was myself. It? So friends, please come back for that. Yeah, this is okay. That sounds interesting. That sounds fascinating. I want to hear the theories. I am upset and agitated on top of where I was before we started this. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. I mean, I hope that I at least was able to like displace or replace or move your anger a little bit into a different direction, perhaps? I mean, it's in different cups. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. added some cups to it. You added some cups. So now I'm just going to start playing music on my anger. Perfect. Um, I love it. So do you have any other thoughts about my case before we close out part one? No, because I feel like I invented them as we went through. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like this is something that like we talk about, like missing white woman syndrome and whatnot. And it is it's definitely a thing. And like we mentioned, it's not to take away from those cases because those cases are equally important. But then let's make let's bring everything else up to that level of equality. Like, exactly. not to take those other cases down a peg, but to bump the other ones up. Exactly. And those issues, I think, will kind of circle in a different way when we start talking about the men involved yeah. uh, in either timeline as well. So yeah. please come back for that, peeps. Yeah. If you're interested, I think this is, an, this is a fascinating conversation. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yay. All right, you guys. So uh, on that note, we will remind you to be nice. And eat cheese. And, and know that we, we love you. you. I was like, hi, have you listened to me speak for more than three sentences at a time? <laughs> That's not fair because I like listening to you speak. <laughs> yeah, but have you actually listened to the words that come out? Because then you're not <laughs> sentences. I have listened to all the words that have come out of your mouth for a very long time, as a matter of fact. But and you know I how understand. they don't come out in actual sentences that occur in a human language. <laughs> Case in point, what you just said. <laughs> See.